Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Andreas Krieg. Andreas is an assistant professor at the Defense Studies Department of King's College London and a strategic risk consultant working for governmental and commercial clients in the Middle East. His latest book, Subversion, The Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, has just been published by Georgetown University Press. And that's the topic of our conversation today. Andres, good to have you back on the podcast, and congratulations on the book. Um, Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me back. I haven't read all of it, but what I have read is really fascinating and, and quite disturbing. Subversion is an analysis and exploration of how weaponized narratives have become a tool of 21st century statecraft operating in a gray zone between war and peace. Let me begin by asking you what you mean by the term weaponized narrative. Yeah, what I wanted to do is I wanted to move away from the discussion on uh, fake news and disinformation because most of the literature is on disinformation. And disinformation is a very small niche in the information and psychological warfare domain, which is very much you know based on narratives that are false. But what I wanted to look at is that is narratives more generally, because I think the most divisive and the most problematic narratives are probably those that are not based on false facts or that at least are based on a certain degree of truth. So, you know, I think um, you, you have to differentiate here between disinformation and, and, and weaponized narratives. Weaponized narratives are basically narrative storylines that we keep telling ourselves um, and that you're trying to weaponize strategically in an effort to change people's perception, uh, opinion, attitudes, and essentially, potentially also people's uh, decisions. And these storylines can be tweaked um, without necessarily being false. And part of the problem of polarization that we see in the political space, that we see in, in academia as well, is the fact that we communicate in narratives that um, are based on certain assumptions that we very rarely critically reflect upon. And obviously in the age of social media, weaponized narratives are even more problematic because they're essentially, uh, we're essentially uh, socializing around certain poles and, and echo chambers that allow us to communicate within our own narrative in-group so we never have to expose ourselves to external or alternative narratives. And the issue here is that facts, I think we can all agree on, can be somewhat objectively established. Uh, it is the interpretation of these facts facts, which narratives I said you do, that is more problematic. And that's where probably most of public debate and discourse today is is going um, astray because we, we can't agree on the same interpretation of the same facts. Obviously, there is a lot on false information or false facts as well and, and, and manipulated facts. Um, but this is only a small chunk of the broader uh, issue that I was looking at uh, in, in this in this book, which is about weaponized narratives. And essentially, everyone does that. Any anyone who's trying to present himself, herself, um, any company that's investing into PR, any government that's investing in PR, essentially is trying to manipulate the narrative about themselves. And um, not all of them are weaponizing it. So the point that I'm trying to make here is defensive narratives, trying to tell a positive story about yourself is not necessarily problematic and not subversive. What I consider to be subversion is when you offensively manipulate, uh, deliberately manipulate narratives to undermine your competitor's narrative and competitor's standing. And that's when it becomes a matter of warfare because it can be done to mobilize 
entire populations and communities against the social political status quo, against authority, um, and thereby can become, and that's what I argue in this book, and it does become a, a matter of, or an act of war, because you're essentially achieving the same thing that you would achieve if you were using kinetic warfare, which is changing your adversary's will. That's what Clausewitz said. And that can be done more easily, more readily today through the infrastructure that we have available now uh, in the information and age, in the age of hyperconnectivity. And I think you talk about uh, we're we're in a state of unpeace. So in, in fact, although we might assume on the surface that we're not at war with weaponized narratives, we are in effect at war. What I'm looking at here is we're, these are operations that take place constantly. There's no beginning and no end. They take place in that in that kind of gray zone between war and peace. Hence why, you know, it's, I, I would refer to the uh, zone of unpeace, the the domain of unpeace where there isn't peace because it, it's, it's constant. Let me uh, ask you about Iraq because we're now we're 20 years on from that invasion, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Where would you place the Iraq war in the annals of weaponized narratives? Yeah, that, that's a very important, uh, a very important case study, I think. The war in Iraq uh, very much fits into that, although it, it kind of existed in a different context, in a different environment. Uh, it existed in, a, in an information environment that wasn't as hyperconnected as the one that we are operating in today. Uh, you know, we had the Internet, but it was still for the most part Internet 1.0, not 2.0. We didn't have social media. We didn't carry uh, devices on us where we could constantly connect to the Internet and share opinions, share images and data. Um, so it, it was a different information environment. It wasn't the, the war itself was a physical kinetic war. So it, it, it wasn't really subversion in that respect. But what the U.S. government was able to do and the U.S. establishment was able to do is rallying people around an idea uh, and a narrative of Saddam Hussein being not just being a, a bad guy. I think most people would agree that he, he probably would was a dictator, but even that is a narrative. Um, but the, the point that he was trying to uh, you know, build weapons of mass destruction and then use them against the rest of the world, which was actually false information. But the, the war in Iraq was more of a, it, it kind of shows the mechanisms that I'm looking at in the book as well, the social psychological vulnerabilities in the information environment. If you have a narrative that is powerful enough, that resonates with audiences, particularly with their social psychological setup, uh, that means their cognitive biases, their emotional biases, their political biases, you can really manipulate how people act. And I think what 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 the U.S. government at the time, the Bush administration, very successfully did, is implanting the narrative of Saddam Hussein as a Muslim leader in the Middle East who had in the past access to weapons of mass destruction, and then build the narrative in a climate of fear uh, post 9/11. Post 9/11, the U.S. and most of the West, but particularly the United States, the public was in a state of of heightened fear, uh, uncertainty. And it's in this kind of environment where you can most easily implant certain narratives um, because they resonate. People want certainty and narratives can provide you a storyline that provide you with certainty in a even in a world of uncertainty. They can provide you with a worldview that can reassure you about who is good and who is bad. And that was because what came down in 2000, uh, 2000 with 9-11, basically, what came crushing down was the old world of the Cold War order where we had clear enemies and where uh, a, a clear 
nemesis against which we would position ourselves. And then post in the 90s and then early 2000s, we didn't really know what we wanted to do. And 9-11 provided this new idea of creating a new nemesis, you know, Islamism, uh, political Islam, jihadism, and and all of it obviously being very closely related to the Muslim and the, the Muslim and Arab world. And so Iraq kind of fit into that. They build a narrative based on fear of saying, this guy is going to strike you next. And, and this way, they were able to rally people around for an illegal war. And they kind of created this fake idea and fake consensus. I mean, it was a consensus at the time. And that's when narratives are very good at. They kind of build a consensus that it was a good idea to go into Iraq, remove this dictator, and cre recreate stability and security in the Middle East. And uh, so this was is a great example of how even with the old infrastructure, the old information environment, you could actually create, at least in the Western world, uh, you know, in the UK, in the US, a sort of consensual front that was supportive of a war that was on all, by all accounts, illegal, uh, and obviously was never going to de deliver on any of the ends that were stipulated in the beginning. Yes, and of course, the, the price of that uh, weaponized narrative, the Iraqi people pay very, very heavily to this day. Um, you introduced a a term that's new to me, new politic, that's N-double-O politic, as opposed to real politic. And you call new politic statecraft in the information age. It's not whose army wins, but whose story wins. Can you can you just expand on that, uh, what you mean by new politic? Oh, it's not my term. Um, I, I, I learned it from a, a RAND study that was done uh, a couple of years ago. And and the argument that was made there, which I thought very neatly fits into, uh, into subversion, into the debate on weaponized narratives, is I think it sets the context for the world that we're operating in in the, in the 21st century. It is not no longer a world that is dominated by hard power, uh, but it is a very competitive multipolar world uh, where actors small middle and great powers need to find their space it's a it's an environment where there isn't a superpower that dominates all elements of statecraft so it has become more and more competitive and in that and what emerges is a gray zone of conflict where you know your soft power and your influence is more important the stories that you tell is more important than what you actually do in 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 real life and uh, so new politic is is based is kind of the the uh, diametrically opposed concept to real poli real politic uh, news comes from uh, you know the greek word knowledge and it's about building networks of knowledge of information um, in the digital age and dominating the streams of and these kind of flows of information and ideas becomes the most important asset of 21st century statecraft and so weaponized narratives very much fit into that because it is about uh, building narratives, building ideas, building storylines that you can sell to the world. And obviously your storylines need to be in sync with uh, what you actually do. You know, we always speak about the infamous say do gap. So you need to make, make sure that that gap between what you say and what you do is as small as possible. Um, but for the most part, you can wrap anything you do in a narrative, in a positive narrative and thereby legitimize anything you do. So the United States in particular have been very, very poor in this. Uh, and that's so new politics is obviously a, um, uh, is, an, is a concept that came out of the United States. 
as a way of, as a kind of wake up call to people in Washington of saying, you are so preoccupied with realpolitik, with coercion, with, uh, with, uh, with hard power, um, that you don't really see how else you could advance the interests of the nation and the state beyond hard power. Um, it's no longer who has the biggest army and the biggest military. But there is an issue, obviously. The United States is a country that more than any other country in the world, uh, per capita, and also in terms of, particularly in terms of total volume, is investing into his military, uh, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars each year. So they need to le legitimate um, why they're investing that money. And must, much of what the United States does is based on uh, building up its military, using the military and projecting power through the military. And that is something that is a space of competition that most other countries, particular middle powers and small powers, don't compete in. Even countries like China predominantly compete in a different domain, in the information environment, uh, in the uh, in the environment of ideas. And the United States has been very bad in, in doing that. For the most part, whenever they use their military or whenever they have used their military in the last two decades, they have created uh, a greater problems than before. They've undermined it, undermined their posture. They've undermined their soft power. They undermined their credibility. And so th this is kind of a wake-up call of saying we need to rethink statecraft in the United States, despite the fact that we have the biggest military in the world. There are more efficient ways to actually advance our interests and engaging in statecraft. But these kind of means of statecraft, information networks, for example, are not very well established in countries like the United States, where middle powers, competitors, Russia, you know, China is a great power, but even the United Arab Emirates, um, are countries more effective in building information networks. Well, yes, Andreas, you've anticipated my next question, which is, as you say, the United Arab Emirates is is very adept at this game. Um, and, and let's look at uh, how the UAE and principally Abu Dhabi dismantled Egypt's Arab Spring. Tell us how dissatisfaction with the Muslim Brotherhood government of Mohamed Morsi was weaponized into the coup that overthrew Egypt's first democratically elected president. Yeah, so why I'm looking at the United Arab Emirates in this book is not only because I'm very interested in the region and, and the Gulf, uh, but it's also because they are on a global scale. They are quite an impressive um, country in terms of the 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 true capacity and capability that they have and their ability to actually develop statecraft around these limited tools that they have. It's a country of a, one of one million indigenous uh, Emiratis. And there are obviously they are involved in pretty much any conflict and crisis in the Middle East, but also beyond that. They have a huge player in Africa as well. They're a huge player in Central Asia. Um, they're becoming increasingly a large player in Europe and in the United States as well, despite of their relatively small size. So the UAE is quite interesting because they have consciously developed into information warfare, initially as a means of defending themselves uh, in 2006, uh, as there was a scandal uh, involving DP World, where, you know, post-Iraq, post-9-11, the US government didn't want a Middle Eastern country uh, or a company from the Middle East holding control over a critical national infrastructure. And the UAE at that point in 2006 realized they need to change their image. So they build very, very successfully networks to kind of advance the interest of the UAE, kind of polishing their their standing, their their reputation. They used then later on as the Arab Spring kicked off and they, you know, as many regimes, but the UAE in particular, were very, very scared of the civil societal mobilization that happened during the Arab Spring. They used the networks they built and expanded them 
for means of offensive information warfare. And that's where the idea of subversion comes in, because it is very different from polishing up your own image, because all Gulf states do that, you know, Qatar, Saudi, they all invest into lobbying, they all invest into polishing up their image. But what the UAE have done is actually reverse engineering it and using the same um, mechanisms to advance narratives that undermine their competitors and undermine their antagonists. And they've gone so far as to obviously deeply change the attitudes and behaviors and also policymaking in countries like the UK and the United States. Um, and that is a form of statecraft or warfare, if you will, um, that we wouldn't tolerate if it, if it came from any other country. We're not tolerating it, tolerating it when it comes to Russia. And Egypt is a great case study because Egypt for the first time showcased for Abu Dhabi how powerful um, their networks could be. And their influence information networks that they've built consisted of a broad variety of different actors. So obviously some media outlets that are based in uh, in the UAE, and they've obviously built uh, alliances with media networks also in Saudi Arabia. Nowadays, they have their own bot farms um, uh, to kind of subvert social media discourse. Um, but at the time, what they had was money. They had a disgruntled uh, Egyptian public that after two years of revolution haven't hadn't really seen major progress they had a struggling muslim brotherhood government in egypt at the time that was you know by all objective accounts not really delivering on what they promised to deliver much of it obviously having to do with the fact that there are where other institutions such as the military in egypt that wouldn't allow the muslim Brotherhood to to really flourish and and do what they wanted to do but there were also inefficiencies there were um, issues of uh, corruption involving the Muslim Brotherhood as well. So you had an Egyptian public that two years after the beginning of the Arab Spring was alienated, was uh, uh, disillusioned with what the Arab Spring could actually develop um, and, and what it could actually deliver for the people. And what the Emiratis very well did, and this is something you can you can look and, and look at the numbers as well, they were engaging with the liberal smaller liberal um, uh, factions of revolutionaries in Egypt who wanted a secular Egypt, who didn't want to have the Muslim Brotherhood in power. And they kind of strategically built up the the the, the Tamarud uh, movement. The Tamarud movement was a very small group of people, a, a few thousands in, in, in January 2013. But already they were operating in a in an environment where most of Egyptians were fed up with the establishment. It wasn't necessarily directed as a, at the Muslim Brotherhood. It was directed at the state more widely, at government, the military, other institutions, because governments, governance in Egypt was basically falling apart. And what the Emiratis very successfully did is kind of rallying, inserting weaponized narratives blaming all the illnesses, all the problems that Egypt had, which, you know, were built up in Egypt for decades, um, were blaming it on the Muslim Brotherhood and using uh, any sort of vehicle in the information space to advance that narrative. They went into, uh, they engage, the Emiratis engaged very strategically with uh, key uh, Egyptian channels, TV channels to, to kind of advance uh, that narrative. They engaged with groups on the ground that were paid off. They paid even protesters to go out and protest. And the interesting thing here, and that's what Subversion obviously ultimately is trying to do, is about using weaponized narratives to mobilize or demobilize. And they were very, very good at mobilizing the public in Egypt to actually go and protest. Because yes, people were 
felt disenfranchised, they felt disillusioned, but they weren't at the ready yet and ripened yet to go and protest. But the information campaign against the Muslim Brotherhood, amid obviously the failure of governance in Egypt as well, um, and then rallying all these grievances and directing and channeling it against the Muslim Brotherhood was done uh, through a variety of different ways. Obviously, subverting the information environment, but also engaging with the military, uh, allowing the military to actually build up a pretext that they could then exploit in, in, in June 2013. So what you see is from January to June 2013, you have massive mobilization against Morsi, against the Muslim Brotherhood, by people who would have actually, who had actually voted for the Muslim Brotherhood. But the narrative, the, the, the echo chamber that had been created within Egypt from all angles, Egyptians were exposed to the narrative that all the ills of that country were due to the incompetence of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the more that the protest grew, you created a momentum. That momentum was obviously, again, used in the information space to rally more support of saying, look, everyone else is protesting. What are you doing? And they kind of build a movement from a few thousand to, you know, a couple of million people that were protesting in June across the country. And they created that momentum that the Egyptian military could then exploit to say, we're bringing peace to the country. We're removing the Morsi government. We are reestablishing a military rule in the interest of the people, because, you know, that that mobilization kind of was it was it was organic, but it seemed it was only it seemed organic. Let's put it that way. Uh, people didn't do they weren't coerced necessarily. Obviously, some people were paid off, but they weren't necessarily coerced to go and protest because they did something that was based on their grievances. They had a narrative that resonated with their grievance and they created that pretext that the Egyptian military could exploit and then say, look, we're doing this on behalf of the Egyptian people because they all went out to protest. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too. I'm just thinking back to that time where there seemed to be confusion in 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 the West uh, among governments and certain uh, media outlets. That was this really a coup, or you know, do, do we call this a coup? When in fact, yes, it clearly was. So a real a real triumph there for the Emiratis. What about Tunisia today? Because here we are, Kais Saeed dismantling really the last remnants of a of Tunisia's democratic experiment. Tunisia, of course, launched the Arab Spring. Are you seeing a similar kind of strategy playing out in Tunisia? Not just in Tunisia, across the Arab world. I think Egypt, what happened in Egypt in 2013, even amazed the Emiratis. I don't think they expected it to be as easy to remove the Morsi government and to remove the Muslim Brotherhood, which was obviously a, a massive organization that had transcended all aspects of, of civil society uh, and society in Egypt. But it kind of for them, it was uh, it kind of showed them how in that vacuum that happened of a you had the U.S. withdrawal. You didn't have a clear and you still don't have a clear strategy from the West on where they wanted the Middle East to go. Uh, it created a vacuum um, that the Emiratis were willing and able to fill. You had the Qataris who by 2013, after the coup in Egypt, were kind of pushed out of Egypt, lost some of the traction of their support for the Arab Spring uh, and then kind of gradually withdrew themselves from the from from that uh, uh, from the Arab Spring, also you know you had, a, you had a change of emir from father to son in 2013, after which the countries changed their engagement to the Arab Spring. So that created a vacuum that the Emiratis could fill, and they did they did it very very well. So in February 2014, not even a year after, you had this uh, degenerate uh, uh, Hafta, uh, this degenerate military officer who went on YouTube and said um, he stated, he's starting a coup against the um, the the ill governance of, of Libya and all the problems in Libya. At the time, in February 20, 
14 nobody listened to after it was a very it wasn't a very well circulated video nobody really listened to it people were laughing at it what is interesting though is the emiratis then started engaging hafta and he came back i think it was in june 2014 um with what he called Oper operation dignity operation dignity the the media campaign behind it, the social media campaign, the narrative campaign behind it was a lot more sophisticated. It was, you know, obviously propped up by Emirati money. Um, the Emiratis had also lent, lent their support to Hafta through, you know, their tribal networks on the ground. And and Hafta used the same thing that Sisi used in, in 2013. The greatest narrative of not just saying the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization, but the Emiratis used the narrative of Islamism equals terrorism. And obviously most of the uh, first movers or second movers uh, and most of that momentum that sustained the Arab Spring was led by Islamist factions. They were the natural opposition forces in the region. And these uh, organizations, these, um, the, these kind of movements, these kind of Islamist camps were now being ostracized in the in the information environment as being terrorist organizations and that was a narrative that didn't only resonate with the west and particularly conservatives and on the far right but it also resonated with many liberals in the arab world who were still at the time a minority and so what the emiratis did in with first in egypt saying the muslim brotherhood is a terrorist organization and that's something the narrative that sisi used very quickly of of obviously outlawing the muslim brotherhood and pushing it underground then we had the the massacre uh, against the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. In, in 2014, Haftar used the same narrative of saying, I'm fighting against terrorism. I'm here to bring back stability and I'm, I'm, I'm going to deliver ag against the Islamists and pushing them out. And Operation Dignity was obviously initially more about, it was always more about regional or local competitors in the Islamist space. But the narrative was they're doing this because they're fighting Daesh, they're fighting Al-Qaeda, which was something that most Westerners could get on board with. It's the reason the French uh, initially went on board and supported Haftar. And so what happened, this, this kind of counter-terrorism narrative, tolerance narrative as well that the Emiratis have pushed out since, this idea of moderation, tolerance, fighting terrorism, was really designed to undermine the credibility and legitimacy of civil society in the Arab world. Those people who moved uh, during the Arab Spring. And only a teeny tiny faction of those people who moved were actually on the jihadist end of the spectrum, obviously. Most of them were very moderate Islamist or uh, uh, factions. Some of them were, you know, they were politically liberal. Um, most of them, I would say, were politically liberal. But they were all pushed and sidelined and, and put in that corner of saying these are all terrorist organizations. That mechanism the Egyptians have obviously used time and again. Assad has used it uh, against, uh, you know, his his uh, butchery against the Syrian people of saying that he's fighting terrorists. Rainies have used it against uh, Shia minorities and uh, majorities in their country saying they're all terrorists. They're all in cahoots with the, with the Iranians. So the terrorism narrative became such a powerful tool of legitimizing why you're clamping down on civil society. And Saeed in Tunisia is no different. It's quite interesting as well how much of the grievances in Tunisia, and they were organic, the grievances were real, but the movements that came out of it, the mobilization that came out of it, that we saw in 2020, 2021, you know, mass protests, they were ripened again by Emirati proxies and surrogates and, and information networks. Um, certain people have made speeches in parliament in Tunisia with clear links to the UAE, you know, saying it's all the fault of um, of the Muslim Brotherhood movement. It's, it's, it's all the Islamists' fault that we're in this, in this malaise that this country is in. And 
you you see a lot of engagement between the UAE and Saeed in early 20, uh, 2021 and late 2020, a lot of engagement. Uh, you see that uh, certain media outlets that are close to the Emiratis are pushing the narrative of, look, the, the problem is really with this government. We need to get rid of it. And you had people protesting. So you had that illusion of saying the people want to get rid of the government. And it's probably true. People were fed up with the government, but they created again. They 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 what they did is they they really ripened this mo that moment that was uh, broadcast everywhere of saying the Tunisian people had enough. And then in came uh, Said, similar as Sisi did in 2013, of saying, "I'm your savior. I'm going to rescue you." Again, using the narrative of we have to push back against terrorism. We have to bring stability. Stability and order can only work when basically one man is in charge. And that's again the Emirati. Narrative is like one man, one authoritarian strong man is the is the only solution to all the problems in the Arab world. And the Emiratis have been supporting their uh, their counter revolutionary movement was really all about reinstating some sort of authoritarian stability, and that in itself is obviously quite a powerful narrative. Can I um, ask you about Israel? I know you you don't deal with it in the book, but the Israelis have long been very good players in the game of weaponized narratives. It's called Hasbara, broadly a global PR campaign aimed at always presenting Israel as the good guy and Palestinians and critics as the bad guys. How good are the Israelis? And of course, we should note that the UAE and the Israelis work very closely, particularly since the Abraham Accords. Yeah, I mean, the the Hasbara campaign is probably the oldest form of information-based statecraft that I can think of in terms of doing doing it at a scale to delegitimize your competitor. Why I didn't look at Israel in this book, uh, because I thought about writing about Hasbara, uh, which comes from the word lasbil, which is to explain. Hasbara is, the, uh, is basically the the PR campaign, which mobilizes all networks. It's not just state-led. It's And that's, again, very important. The way that weaponized narratives work is through networks they don't work by if you only work through your own your own state uh, owned channels so there's a lot of delegation involved and the israelis have been very very successful like the emiratis in cultivating their own networks of of people not necessarily through money these are not all transactional relationships in the same way that emirati information networks are not all transactional they many of them are transformational uh, in the way that you you find allies, ideological allies who buy into your narrative, who have a problem with political Islam. And that's, again, where Israeli and Emirati narratives kind of overlap, especially in Washington, when you look at the, the think tank community. These are all people who are neoconservatives or conservatives or people on the far right who have a problem, you know, who are Islamophobic, who see Islamism as terrorism. That, again, is something that, I, you know, I studied in Israel uh, at a fairly liberal institution but our counterterrorism program was all about, you know, every every sort of Islamist is basically already on the spectrum of terrorism. So it's 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 the Hasbara campaign of Israel that really came up with that equation of all activism in the all Islamic activism in the Arab world equals terrorism, uh, which the Emiratis have adopted, and it, it's a narrative that very well resonates with Islamophobic circles in in the West, uh, particularly on the on the far right end of the spectrum. Um, but Hasbara is uh, is has been so successful because it's been it has been transported through networks, through intermediaries, through Jewish communities, 
through think tanks, through people who evangelicals in America who, you know, would want to see in Israel that protects the right of Christians vis-a-vis -vis the rights of Muslims, um, which, you know, is quite an interesting development that we see that we've seen over the last couple of days where you have more and more evangelicals actually coming out being critical of Israel um, because of what it does and this this new fundamentalism that we see in Israel uh, happening at the moment. But Hasbara is kind of the root cause of how you can how you can use the information space for statecraft. It started off again as a way of defending Israel and defend, defending Israel's cause uh, and fighting back against anti-Semitism. And then developed, the networks then existed. And these same networks, the same channels are now being used to delegitimize the Palestinians. The reason I didn't look at Israel is because it is mostly, and it's, you know, it's terrible what they're doing and it's terrible for the Palestinian cause and what they do in dehumanizing Palestinians is horrible. Um, but it is very much for the for the time being limited to Palestine. They they have now expanded. We have more and more evidence that through the Emiratis they've built networks into the wider Arab world in trying to influence um, the rest of uh, of of Arab public publics. We have evidence now of Israeli uh, PR firms being involved directly or indirectly for the Israeli government in trying to manipulate outcomes of elections in Africa. That that is a new development. Uh, it's still not on the same scale as what the Russians are doing or what even the Emiratis are doing across the Arab world. Uh, but I think Israel is, especially in partnership with the UAE, a very powerful contender to operate in this space and and use their knowledge and experience of subverting the Palestinian cause and public uh, Palestinian civil society. That's also something that you you mustn't underestimate. They've been very, very good in in creating and inserting weaponized narratives in the Palestinian uh, in the Palestinian uh, civil society have undermined and demobilized Palestinians. So um, there are two interesting uh, partners that found each other, the, the Israelis and the Emiratis, because they're pushing in the right in the same direction. Also, they have the same networks in the West. They're using the same conservative, neoconservative circles in Washington, in London, in Brussels um, to push their narratives. And um, and it, it 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 that's also why I think this partnership between Israel and the UAE, despite all the narrative now that comes out of the UAE of them uh, kind of uh, severing relations diplomatically with the Israelis, at the heart, there is an ideological component where both sides agree. They both want, the Israelis and the Emiratis, want a, want a Middle East that is run by authoritarians. They don't want a Middle East that is run by uh, by Arab civil society, definitely not by Islamists. Uh, but they're scared of Arab civil society because Arab civil society is anti-Israeli. So here there is a shared objective by the UAE and Israel to make sure the revolutions of the Arab Spring uh, don't, you know, go into phase two or three and, and keep them basically subverted. Now, finally, Andreas, we've looked at how successful authoritarian regimes have been. Uh, and let me quote here from Subversion. They've been successful in targeting audiences to voluntarily make the predetermined decision desired by the information warrior. So how do we who espouse the values of liberal democracy get back on the front foot and mount a rebuttal to these very successful authoritarian information warriors? The, the great problem that we have is that we still live in denial for the most part. When we look at information security, we look at cybersecurity, we only look at the tactical and operational level. We rarely actually look at the strategic level of how strategically 
um, networks uh, um, have been built to manipulate um, narratives and, and decisions and attitudes. The problem with that is that most people in policymaking circles already are part of these networks, directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously. Uh, the first time that we actually started looking at this was when we looked at Russia. Uh, and, and now post-Ukraine, we're so obsessed with Russian networks and, and how they operate in the policy space, in academia, in academia less so actually, um, but you know, in the media space, in the social media space. And we're, we're flagging them up and we're pushing back against it. And we're kind of trying to build a consensus um, against these kind of networks and their narratives. But it's very easy because Russia has been almost, you know, by, by a majority in Western uh, civil societies has been uh, defined as an enemy, as a competitor and, and someone that we don't want to engage with. The problem is when weaponized narratives are being used by our partners, by our allies, uh, such as the UAE or Israel, um, and doing that increasingly in our own civil societies at home, um, because we first have to be aware that this is what they're doing. And we have to accept that this is something that we reject and we have to push back against it. So how do we do that, Andreas? There, there are a variety of different ways of developing resilience against it because we can't we can't deny these information warriors access to our liberal civil society. That would be you know that would be the end of us being liberal society. So we need to find ways to sustain this uh, resiliently without uh, critically failing, basically. And education is the most important uh, one. I think we need to start very early on in curriculums in in, in schools to really teach critical thinking. Uh, the evaluation of information is very important. How do you see through this flood of information that comes uh, towards us and identify what is false and what isn't? And most importantly, what seems to be correct, but has a certain spin on it. Um, how do you become more cynical about the sources that you're using? Um, and that brings me to the next point. We need to have more, we have to have a greater look at how academia is being funded, how think tanks are being funded, by whom they're funded, for what purpose they're funded, um, and to what extent that funding has an impact on what is being written and what has been promoted. And obviously, again, most infamously, during the Gulf crisis, it was Emirati outlets, uh, paid outlets in the in the US that really pushed that crisis against Qatar. Uh, think tank is taking on the position of Qatar is financing terrorism. Um, Qatar is, in the Muslim Brotherhood, is a terrorist organization. And it's quite interesting to see what sort of individuals in the UK and in the United States have taken a position on the Muslim Brotherhood, although they have absolutely no engagement, no interaction with the Muslim Brotherhood. Keep asking myself, why would people do that? What do they get in return? Uh, and and then if you trace the money, you realize that most of the time they have some sort of engagement financially or more indirectly with the UAE. Um, so you have to be more cynical about that. And policymakers. I mean, we need to check on policymakers. Maybe in the UK in particular, we need to emulate something like the FARA register, which they have in the United States, uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, that anybody who's paid in policymaking circles by an external foreign entity will have to declare that without uh, before engaging with policymakers. Again, there are huge loopholes in the United States where people get away with, but at least there is something in place. Most other countries don't have that. So this is how you push back against it. And then obviously the last element you do is build your counter narrative. You can't, if you stay silent in that space, you're empowering the information warriors. And so you need to push back and you need to engage in the information environment with your own narratives. So, and that leads to further polarization. So I'm quite uh, pessimistic about where, where we're going with this. Uh, social media needs to be regulated as well. We have seen some efforts made 
but not near, not, nowhere near enough to actually make a difference on the ground. And I think the next five to 10 years, we'll probably see more of that polarization leading to more mobilization and demobilization until we realize that what happens on the 6th of January, 2021 was not an isolated incident in the United States. The mobilization was a direct effect of years of manipulation and polarization and mobilization by Russian uh, uh, proxies in the U.S. in the U.S. Uh, information environment. Well, Andreas, uh, subversion, the strategic weaponization of narratives, uh, sounds the alarm, and uh, it, it's uh, it is, as I said, a, a fascinating and disturbing study, and one that I, I recommend highly, and and hopefully our policymakers, our politicians we'll have a read of it too. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, as always. Thank you. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Andreas Krieg. Andreas is an assistant professor at the Defence Studies Department of King's College London. His latest book, Subversion, The Strategic Weaponization of Narratives, has just been published by Georgetown University Press, and I recommend it highly. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times now in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Andres. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.